All right, so we're back in the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, we've started this series called Good Dirt, and you know the circumstances behind it. We've been looking at Jesus' parable where Jesus talks about the different kinds of dirt that uh, farmers throws a seed into. He casts out the seed, and some of them, they fell by the path, and on the path, they were, the seed were trampled. Some fell into a pa- a places with thorns, and the thorns came up and uh, uh, choked them out of life, and some fell into places with rocks, and they just didn't have anywhere to go, and some fell into the good soil. And so we've been asking this question, what does it mean for us when we receive the Holy Spirit to be that good soil? To be the soil without the thorns, to be the soil without the rocks, to be the kind of soil that allows for the Word of God to grow in our lives. So today we'll continue that conversation, we'll continue that, uh, that question. So every four years comes one of my favorite times in, in these four years, and that is, if you're like me, the Olympics. I love the Olympics. For me, it's, it's an incredible time of watching just these elite athletes from all around the world. It's an incredible time to see the world come together and to be able to compete. And you have these incredible men and women who come and they've devoted their entire life to their craft, to their sport, to, their, to whatever their, their uh, category is. And they, they've been working hard. They've been working hard their whole lives. And now they're here. They're on their big stage. And all of them, they're competing for this title, the greatest, right? Because if you've got a, great, a gold medal in the Olympics, you're one of the best. You've, you've made it. You're the fastest person, or you're the fastest swimmer, or you can jump the highest. You can, you can jump the farthest, or you can uh, do a routine flawlessly. Or if you're like Michael Phelps, you can have more medals that's taller than him. Than, and so it's incredible. And this is what you're striving for. Now, if you're like me, I'd like to sit back and uh, have a remote in one hand and a drink in the other, and I'm sitting on my, cha- my chair, and I'm watching this, and I'm critiquing them, and I'm judging them. I'm going, wait, they, they didn't jump high enough, or as the gymnasts are doing their routines, there's a leg separation there. They did not stick the landing. In my broad experience, I sit there and critique, and I judge, and I say, they're great. They're not. They're good. They're not. And we often do this, don't we? We often judge. We often look. And we often create categories and say, they are destined for greatness or they are the best. And we do this not just with sports. We have categories for greatness all over our society, right? We have the Pulitzer Prize, the Nobel Peace Prizes. We have all of these. And sometimes when we don't get our own prizes, we claim our own, right? How many of you have the world's greatest dad or the world's greatest mom mugs here? I see two, two hands, right? We often claim it for ourselves or our children claim it for us. Not that, there is, not that it actually is that you're the world's greatest dad, but there's some sentiment behind it and we're always striving to be the greatest. There's this thing in society where we honor those who've put their life and their craft and they've honed their skills and they've done something incredibly well and they are the greatest. And so we proclaim them to be. But my question for you this morning is, what does it mean to be the greatest? How do you define it? How do you define the greatest? Because in a sport like running, right, you can say Usain Bolt is the fastest person because he outruns everybody else. But 
what makes the greatest dad? What makes the greatest salesperson or what makes the greatest doctor or what makes the greatest police person, what, whatever it is, whatever category, what makes the greatest mom, what makes the greatest grandmother? How do you define greatness? Because so often we realize that greatness, defining greatness, it's a moving target. Because sometimes what's great today, what is, what's exceptional today becomes expected tomorrow, right? If you're performing at your peak today, it's always expected. And you're always expected to keep striving. So what is it? So what's that? What's the criteria for greatness? Well, good question. So let's turn to, learn to, uh, turn, turn to Luke chapter 7. We're in Luke chapter 7. Verses 24 through 28. And we know last week we met this man named John. And John, the Baptist, John, the cousin of Jesus Christ, he's in prison. And we know he's in prison because he was called as a prophet. He's been preaching repentance to all of the kingdom of Judea. He's been preaching repentance so much so that it got to the king. He called the king out on some of his own behavior, and he's in, he's in prison. And he sends messengers out to Jesus in a moment of doubt and in a moment of confusion and says, Jesus, if, are you really the Messiah? Because I've, I've spent my entire life, I've spent my entire career, I've done everything to proclaim who you are, and I've been preparing the way for you. Are you the one, or do we wait for somebody else? And we talked about that a little bit last week, and Jesus sends his disciples back, and that's where we pick up. So in verse 24, this is what we read. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none, women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus has sent John's disciples back with the answer to John's question, but he's not done talking about it. So he looks at the crowd and he, he asks the crowd. And most of this crowd had already gone through the ministry of John. They've already heard of John. They've already responded to John. And now they're here uh, listening to Jesus. And he looks at them and he says, when you encountered John, when you went out in the, into the wilderness, what did you go out to see? What was your expectation? Right? It's almost like, we're going out to see a show at the TD Garden. It takes us about two hours to find a parking spot. We get our concessions. We grab our seat. And we're waiting for the show to begin. But back in the day, it was a very different way to come at it. Because they didn't just drive up. They, when they went out to see someone in the wilderness, when they went out to see John or this celebrity of sorts that's out there and preaching, when they went out, they were not traveling. They were traveling miles and miles on foot at times. Some traveled as far as 40 miles to come see John. And traveling on foot in the wilderness, you carried only as much as you could, the provisions, and so people often went hungry. And all of this, there's a commitment behind 
when they went to see John. And Jesus is saying, with all the hardship that you had to endure to see this person, what did you see? Did you see a reed that's blown back and forth by the wind? These reeds Jesus is talking about are the reeds you would see on the banks of a river. And these reeds are thin and long, and so when the wind blew, it blow one way and the other, it would just go with the wind. And Jesus is saying, did you see a man that was kind of like this reed who spoke whatever was most popular that day, whatever the media was talking about, or whatever the, the next leader was talking about, whatever the pastor was talking about, did he just tell you what you wanted to hear? Is that what you wanted to see? Or is that what you saw? Or maybe you saw a man in flashy clothes and soft clothing. And the idea here is soft clothing was often used or um, th this connotation was used for male prostitutes in the king's palace. He's saying, did you go to see one of those? Because those who were wear fancy clothes, they would be in the palace and they lived in the palace because they were often around kings and royalty and rich people because they wanted to live a life of luxury. And so they would almost like parasites attach themselves to the wealth or to the royalty. He's saying, if that's what you wanted, someone who would do and say whatever you wanted them to say so that you could live the life you wanted to so that you could live a life of luxury. He's saying, Jesus is saying, that's not what you wanted to see because they wouldn't be in the wilderness, they'd be in the king's court. So what did you see? You see, when these people went out, they met a man who, unlike the reed, stood firm. Who, unlike the vacillating and the back and forth and, the, and saying whatever pleased the people, he spoke out with conviction. He looked at the people and said, great, you've all come to see me. You've all come. You've made the journey. That's good for you. But guess what? Repent because you're a sinner. Repent because the Messiah is coming. And when the Messiah is coming, he's coming to judge you. You are a sinner. Repent and be baptized. He called them out on their, on their sins. He called them out on their behaviors. He called them out. He called out people even to the point of going to prison. And the story will tell us that he would go to his death because of his message. So you didn't see a man who was vacillating instead a man that was firm. You didn't see someone who was in fancy clothing. Instead, Matthew and, Mo and Mark writes about him this way. Matthew and John writes this way. He was a man who wore camel's hair as his clothing, tied together with a belt, his diet was locusts and honey. Not a man who, not a man who ate fancy things, not a man who wore fancy clothes. He, he lived in the wilderness. He was a man of the open fields. And this person who lived this way, who lived as a prophet, Jesus is saying, you went out to him, not because it was an easy thing, not because he had good words for you to hear, but he had the right words for you to hear. And he's saying, what you went out to see was not a reed, was not a fancy man, but instead what you went out to see was a prophet. A prophet and even more. And this prophet, and Jesus describes him as a prophet because he is fulfilling a message. He had a message from the Lord. He had a message from God to deliver to the people. And the message was simply this, the Messiah is coming. Get ready. Yes. 
The Messiah is coming. He is at the doorstep. He is coming. The one coming after me, he will come. He, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with fire. The Messiah is coming, so get ready. Repent of your sins and be baptized. And this baptism that John was asking these people to take was an interesting baptism, if you think about it. Because today, we, get, we baptize people as well. In this church, we believe in baptism because the word calls us to. We believe in people believing in Jesus Christ, people putting their trust in Jesus Christ, and then getting baptized. And what that baptism essentially is, hey, there's an inward reality, and this baptism is an expression of that. The baptism is a public declaration to all the people around me that, hey, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and I am emulating Jesus' death into the water, into the ground, and then out. I'm re emulating his resurrection. And that's what baptism today represents. Baptism is simply an obedience to a command that Jesus said, go baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But back then, when John was baptizing, it meant something completely different. You see, back then, when someone got baptized, especially in the Jewish context, was because they were trying to become a part, they were a foreigner trying to become a part of the Jewish community. So, for example, in our day-to-day, -day, we have people trying to become citizens in the U.S., so as a citizen in the U.S., there's a process that you have to follow. You're immigrating from another country or whatever your circumstances. You fill out the paperwork. You go through the process. You go through the interviews. You do all of those things, and eventually you become a citizen. In their context, there was a long process for the foreigner to go through, and one step was baptism. What baptism meant was, hey, when I get baptized, I'm rejecting my old, going down, and I'm taking on my new identity. My old foreign identity is I'm giving up. I'm taking on this new one. But also in that, I'm rejecting my old sinful self. And I'm being raised into the covenant that God had with the people of Israel. What they were essentially saying was, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. And I need restoration. I am broken, and I need to be fixed. I need to be able to come back into the covenant with Jesus, and that's what is, or with, with God, and that's essentially what baptism in John's day meant. But you see, what's unique about that is that John is calling the people of Israel, the community that he's talking to is a Jewish community. They had no need to be baptized. There was no reason for them to be baptized because they were already in. They were already part of God's people. They were already God, part of God's children. So why would someone willingly put themselves through this process and say, hey, world, guess what? I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I am, I'm, a, I'm, I'm worthy of punishment, and I need to be redeemed. That's essentially what John was getting these people to do. And Jesus is saying, Jesus is making a declaration about this, John. Verse 28, this is, this is what it says. I tell you, among those born of a woman, none is greater than John. And he's looking at the people of his, excuse me, he's looking at the people, the Jewish people there, and he's telling them this. You know those, that person named Abraham? The person named Moses? That person named King David? Guess what? John is greater than all of them. And to 
To them, it would have been blasphemy in that moment. Because Abraham is venerated and Abraham is raised up to a level that no one else could compare. Or Moses, the deliverer, or King David. No one was greater than these folks. But Jesus is saying, of all women, any child born, John is the greatest. So what makes him great? What is the definition of great here? See, greatness is defined in this moment by the one who called into the position he was called. Let me expand on that. John, when he was called, he was, he was born into the role of this prophet. Even before he was born, the angel appeared to Zechariah and said, you, out, of your, out of your wife will come a son, and he will prepare the way for the Almighty. He will prepare the way for the Messiah. That was a prophecy in Malachi. That was a prophecy in Isaiah. That was a prophecy throughout the Old Testament that says, behold, a man will come who will prepare. A voice cries out. Isaiah says this. A voice cries out in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our Lord. Ma Malachi says, he will come and he will declare that the Messiah is coming. Amen. That is his role. That is what makes him great. But let me ask you, Isaiah and Malachi said the same thing. So what's the difference? See, all the prophets and all the kings and all the people of Israel, they all waited for that day. They were waiting in anticipation of the day the Messiah would come. The only difference between John and every other prophet was every other prophet spoke out in faith saying that the Messiah was coming. John got to see the Messiah arrive. John got to baptize the Messiah. John got to hold the Messiah. John got to speak with the Messiah. And he says, you are the greatest because you get to see the fulfillment. But then Jesus goes on to make another statement right after that. He's saying, yes, John is greatest of all women, of all people born of a woman. But anyone who is even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So what does that mean? So now you have the greatest, the greatest of all time. But now you have someone who's even greater. What is Jesus talking about? Simply this. You and me. Us, we're the ones in the kingdom of God. You and I who have experienced Jesus, who have experienced the work, the completed work of the Messiah, who have experienced the work of the cross, who have experienced the work of redemption, who have experienced, who have experienced, who have tasted the joy that is found in the sacrifice that Christ did, we are the ones in the kingdom. You see, why are we greater? We're greater because we get to experience what they did not. What John, John died before Jesus could, get, uh, could finish the work. All of the prophets before John, they all waited and hoped. They looked in expectation but never was fulfilled. But we have the benefit and the, be the blessing of hindsight. We can look back and see the work that was completed. We can experience the work that was completed. And Jesus is saying, all of you, you are greater in the kingdom than John because of this fact. Your greatness is not defined by your ability or your capability. It's not defined by your work. It's not defined by what you can bring to the table. But it is defined by your position. Your position is you have access to the Messiah. 
You have access to the gospel. The gospel is presented to you. Here you go. Take it is what Jesus is saying. And if you're the least in the kingdom of God, you are still greater than John. See, John was humble. He was great. He was an incredible character. He was, he was a man of integrity in all this. But it was his position, his role that made him great. There's a show on TV that I really, really enjoy called Shark Tank. I don't know if any of you have watched it. Now, Shark Tank, here's the premise. There's a group of investors. There are about five investors. They sit, at the, they sit in, in the room, and they have people, contestants, who come and present. They pitch an idea or a product that they've come up with or some invention, and they're, they're saying, hey, this is a product that will revolutionize the way you live, will, will impact your family, will make your life easier, will, your pet will enjoy it, your health will be, be better, all of these things. And they pitch this idea to the investors, and the investors get to decide, hey, is it worth putting my money behind it? Is it worth helping them build this business? And the goal of these, of these people, these uh, entrepreneurs, is I need to get one of these investors to give me money so I can grow my business. Now, here's how I approach it. So I'll watch the first part of it. I'll watch the presentation. I'll watch the, all the, the flamboyant, whatever they have. They'll, they'll have uh, uh, the presentation is loud. It's, it's full of joy. It's full, of, it's full of everything you can imagine. And then I hit pause once their presentation is done. And I sit back and go, okay, let's evaluate. <laughs> let's consider, will they get it or will they not? And I look at the product and I go, if I could buy it, I would definitely buy it. I would definitely go out and I'd get it because it's of value to me. And I love this product. I love the service. I love the presentation. You know, they're full of joy. They're full of life. Who wouldn't want to invest with these people? And then hit play. Then the investors start asking questions. They'll ask questions like, all right, tell me your sales, your gross sales for the last year. What were your expenses over the last, since you started this product, how many employees do you have? They start break, they start picking apart the presentation, and these are not numbers that they included in the presentation, so the investors, they ask them all this, and suddenly you realize the product is not seeming that great anymore <laughs> because the product might be great, but everything supporting it will not sustain it. And so one investor after another investor after another investor, they all pull out, and I'm going, wait, I would have given them money. You see, the product's greatness is determined by the one who's judging it. Me, my judgment means nothing. My judgment as a couch expert means nothing. Me yelling at the TV saying, you made a big mistake, means nothing. But what the, what the entrepreneur is looking for is, will one of these sharks, will one of these judges actually invest in my product? You see, the people of Israel and the people of Judea had judged John. Some had judged him too harshly. Some had judged him too leniently. But it didn't matter. The one's judgment that really mattered was Jesus. Let's continue in, in, in this passage. 729, verses, uh, 729 through 35. When all the people heard this, 
the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Let's take a pause there. See, all the people who, who listened to Jesus in that moment realized Jesus was vindicating John's ministry. Jesus was affirming, John, you have done right. Your product, your pitch was right. Your service, whatever it may be, is right. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, people, this is worth investing in. This is worth listening to. This is worth paying attention to. And, the, and Luke says, and all of them rejoice, and they even justify God, including the tax collectors. There was a mass acceptance of Jesus and mass acceptance of John. But the religious leaders. But the lawyers. What does Luke say? They rejected the purpose that God had for them. There's a question here. What did the people see that the religious leaders did not? How can someone who is so in tune with God, so in tune with the religious atmosphere, completely miss it and completely write off the purpose of God? Here are a few things that I often think that happens. In certain professions, and especially professions that deal with high energy, high impact moments, especially people like doctors and police officers and therapists and all these people, something that you'll often notice is when they start their careers, they start with so much energy. They start with so much passion, they're ready. And I've often talked to people in these professions and they get out of nursing school or they get out of medical school and they're ready to tackle the world. They're ready to conquer everything. They're ready to heal every sickness. They're ready to solve every problem. They're ready to fix every law. They're ready to do it all. But then you come back and you talk to them maybe 10 years from then. And you realize that passion has somehow waned and their passion has somehow given away to a sense of apathy. And it's not always the case, but more often than not, why so? Why did someone who started with so much gusto suddenly has the sense of complacency about them? You see that in a lot of different professions. You see that at your workplaces. You see that all the time. Because what happens is when you've been doing something for so long, you've been dealing with the same issues and the same pressures, it has a way of wearing down on us. It has a way of developing a sense of apathy. I remember when I first started Bible college 10 years ago, I remember that I was into my books all the time. I was reading scripture on and on and on, and it was a big part of my day. It was reading scripture, it was reading books, it was reading historians, reading theologians, and I was in, in the Bible within, within, between Bible college and seminary and even in my pastoral role right now. I'm so much into my books that I realized that sometimes I can be so much into it that I lose sight of the big, the more important thing. And that is my relationship with Jesus. 
See, you see, learning isn't as important as my actual relationship with the Lord. As much time as I spent taking apart the word and learning the, the Greek and the Hebrew and all of those kind of things, it's great, it's beneficial, but what it's not doing, it's not furthering my relationship with the Lord. What it's not doing is not helping me grow in love with Jesus. I'm learning the technical aspects of it. Like the doctor or the nurse, they're learning all the technical aspects of it because once you lose the passion behind it, once you lose the heart behind it, then suddenly you've become apathetic. And that's what's been happening with these people here in in Jesus' day. You see, the Pharisees and the lawyers, they dealt with the laws of God all the time. They dealt with the religious things all the time. They handled the holy and the sacred things all the time. They handled the scriptures so much so that it became more of an academic and more of a societal exercise than a personal relationship with the Lord, because, with God. Because what they lacked, they had the law, but they lacked the heart of the law. They had everything that they needed, but they lacked the heart to drive them. The heart would say, look at the Messiah. The heart of the law was this. The law is for right now, but the Messiah will come and he'll redeem the law. And they lacked that. You see, they rejected it because for them, it was also a matter of pride. See, for, th- for them, it was a matter of, hey, I can work my way through this. I can work, I can do this, because in, in the Jewish tradition and in the religion, in that, in that moment, you, you, gave your, you came to the temple, you attended the, the services, you made your sacrifices, you followed the law, you did all the rituals, you did all of these things, and at the end of the day, you could say, yes, I've accomplished them. And these people, the lawyers and the religious leaders, they're all saying, look at me, I've accomplished all of this. But have they really? Because you see, for them, entrance into the kingdom of God, entrance into God's rest was about their own act, their own merit, more than the grace of God. What John was preaching to them was, repent of your sins and come be baptized. Repent of all that you have done. And for them, it would have to mean that they were sinners. For them to accept John's message would mean that they had to proclaim, hey, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, and I need entrance into the kingdom of God, and they were not about to do it. See, sometimes our own pride, sometimes our own desire to work our way into salvation gets in the way of salvation itself. So if you've arrived this morning and you've said, hey, all this sounds great, and, but for me, I'd rather just work my way there. I trust my work. I trust my abilities. Jesus is saying that doesn't. That ends up in rejecting God's work. See, our greatness is defined by the one who calls us. Our greatness is defined by our position, but our greatness is also defined by our acceptance of the work done for us. Our acceptance of the one who's calling us. Because when he's given you grace and you haven't accepted it, it's worth nothing to you. Our greatness in God's kingdom is determined by our acceptance of God's grace and not our work. And finally, there was a fickleness about 
how they handled it. Let me, let me read the rest of the passage, and this is what it says. To what shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? They're like little children sitting in the marketplace, and they call out to one another and say, we played the flute for you, you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't, did not weep. For John the, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say he's a drunkard and a gluttonous man, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is what he's saying. He's comparing them to little children, little children who play games all the time. What he's comparing them to is in, in those days, in the marketplace, you'd see the parents buying and selling, or you'd see the adults doing that, and you'd see a bunch of children just running around playing because they didn't have much to do at that point. And so what they would play these games of, they'd put on a, a pretend wedding or a pretend funeral, and they'd, they'd play a wedding with a bride and a groom, and they'd sing a song, and, and Jesus is saying, this is what you're doing. You're playing these games. You're singing these songs, and no one's singing with you. Or you're pretending it to be at a funeral and you're singing this dirge and no one's crying with you. As a matter of fact, you're looking at John and saying, oh, he did these things and so he must have a demon. And then you're looking at Jesus and look, saying the exact opposite. Does it ever feel that way? People who are never satisfied with something? So often, even within the church, we encounter people who are never satisfied with what they receive. The music is too loud or the music is too low. The sermon is too liberal or the sermon is too conservative. You're too serious, pastor. You lighten up. We hear all of these things and Jesus is saying, it's like little children who can never be satisfied, who can never be pleased. You see, it's not about the style, but it's more about the substance. What they hated was not the way it came, but the message that came. They were not rejecting John because he wore camel's hair. They were not rejecting Jesus because he, uh, he was sitting with tax collectors and sinners. They were rejecting the message that came, the message that demanded that you, be, you repent and you fall prostrate at Jesus' feet. You repent and you accept the grace. They rejected the message and so often when we hear issues in, within the church, my question is, what are you really rejecting? People leave churches for small reasons, and my question is, what are you rejecting? People leave their Christian walks, and my question is, what are you rejecting? Nothing will please a heart who does not feel sin. Jesus is simply calling people out on their own hypocrisy. And I'll invite the worship team back up. They rejected John and Jesus because of, their familiar, because of how familiar they were with religion. They had become apathetic towards it. They rejected John and Jesus because of their false sense of self. They thought too highly of themselves. They didn't need grace because they could just work it out on their own. They rejected Jesus and John because of their own fickle desires. They rejected the message because the message did not fit the mold in which they expected it to come. Yeah. 
They expected Jesus to say, oh, do this. And it would fit with what they hoped he would ask them to do. But instead, when Jesus asked them to do a different thing, it suddenly did not fit their worldview anymore. Question is, as we, in, as we look, as we look back at these people and as we look at how they responded to, to the gospel, the question is, how do you respond to the gospel? And maybe you're sitting here saying, oh, I've been a Christian my whole life, or I've been a Christian for the last five years. I've been a Christian for the last 10 weeks, or whatever your, whatever your experience may be. My response to you is, yes, you may. But you see, so often we can do that in our own daily walk, in our daily decisions, in our daily choices, in, our, in the way we plan out our future in the way we plan out our day in the way we the the people that we listen to and the music that we hear and everything that we hear we're either accepting his promise we're either accepting his gospel or we're rejecting it we're accepting his lordship or we're rejecting it we're accepting his rule in our lives or we're pushing back against it we're rejecting the message and the question for us is in those moments how do you respond how, how do you respond Jesus finally ends this way. Wisdom is justified by her children. Other translations say, wisdom is vindicated by her actions. Wisdom, Jesus is referring to the gospel. To the gospel, and he's saying, the gospel is vindicated by its actions. You see, I know God is true. I know the gospel is true because of what it has happened in my own life. I know God's promise of healing is true because I've experienced it myself. I know God's blessing of provision is true because I've experienced it myself. I know God's promise of transformation is true because I often hear your stories. I often hear how God has transformed your life, how God has transformed your marriage, how God has transformed your children. I know God can fix impossible situations because I've heard stories of children who were so lost and they've made their way back to the Lord. Wisdom is vindicated by her children. Wisdom is vindicated by her actions. You see, if it's true, it'll be proven by its actions. If it is right, it'll be shown right by the way its children live. The gospel is proven true by the way you and I live. For the world to look at the gospel and say, is this gospel worth anything? Yes, it is, because I can see how it changed my friend's life. I can see how it changed my child's life. I can see how it transformed my brother's life. I can see the broken addictions. I can see the broken pain. I can see all of that. And that's how I know the gospel is true. So in your own life, how's the gospel working? Do we accept or do we reject? See, greatness in the kingdom of God is defined by the one who calls us and our acceptance of that call, our acceptance of that grace, our acceptance of that work. So as you go into this week, Remind yourself of his calling on you. Remind yourself of your position in his kingdom. Remind yourself that he sees you as great. He sees you as the greatest. Would you bow your heads with me?
Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your word that comes to us and reminds us, reminds us of our position in you. That even though we're broken, we're sinners, we're, we were once your own enemies, we thank you that your son bridged that gap between us. That now we have access back to you. Now that we have, we have the salvation given to us. Lord, I pray in our daily walk, in our everyday moments, help us live lives that reflect you and reflect your glory. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.